Our worship of Christ continues. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We'll be looking this morning all the way from verses uh, 13 to 22. We may make it to verses 23 to 25. That'll be the great adventure today. I don't know. But I at least know we're going to cover 13 to 22 But because of the way that this particular story unfolds, I'd rather wait to read the entire text as we work our way through the message. But to begin, I will read the opening verses. Let's start actually at verse 12 to pick up from where we left off last week, and then read verse 13 as well. And then we'll dive into the message and cover the rest of the text throughout. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Last Sunday evening, the Academy Award-winning actor, Will Smith, shocked the world. It was during the live television broadcast of the 94th Academy Awards. Smith walks on the stage and he slaps comedian Chris Rock uh, in the face uh, as he's presented with the award for best documentary. Now, if you've been hiding under a rock and you don't know exactly what happened in the last week, I just want to inform you that uh, Smith, by many people's perceptions, had maybe some good designs to do what he did. Uh, Other people would disagree. Just before this, uh, Chris Rock had acknowledged that uh, Smith's wife, uh, Jada Smith, um, was basically had a shaved head and made a joke about that, and he did not know nor make known that she actually had a disease that had contributed to her baldness. With that, Smith was not uh, necessarily amused, and so on account of that, he felt like he needed to defend his bride and walked onto stage, uh, letting out some expletives as well, Um, and then forever, like, imprinting upon the world him as this angry, rageful, vileful individual, to the degree that he's even resigned from the academy and his future is actually in jeopardy. Now, I would love to like do a little debate here and see who thought that his actions were justified and who thought they were unjustified, but that's actually not the point of the message today by any means. But what it does illustrate for us is that expressions of anger are rarely seen as appropriate in the 21st century West. Like we immediately begin to think that anyone displaying any type of emotion is for some reason out of bounds. And if you think what Smith did was shocking, it pales in comparison to what Jesus will do in these few verses. These expressions of anger, these outbursts of rage, they reveal something, they, they show something, they show a value, that they demonstrate something deep about what someone holds dear in their very core and who they are. And since the book of John has been structured around signs indicating that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, his actions, even his expressions of rage, are significant. Remember, that's where the word sign comes from. It shows us something, and and it makes us even wonder that though Jesus is gentle and meek and mild, He is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And if He were to step bodily into this church or into our homes, or in front of us for personal confrontation, 
Would he be the lamb or the lion? Would we receive the pat on the back or the slap in the face? It's a question worth asking. To understand exactly what it is, though, that provokes Jesus' rage, you just need to understand the story. The narrative here is simply about Jesus reforming, re again, forming again, reforming religion or relationship with God in himself. That's what it's going to be about. And with that, there's two really simple movements. There's his condemnation, and then there's the relocation. You're going to see him, like, in anger, condemn in verses 14 to 17, and then you're going to note this relocation or reformation of relationship with God, or what some people call religion, in himself in verses 18 to 21. And so I I want you to feel the story as it unfolds. Uh, Catch the scene here. Uh, We saw in verse 12 already that Jesus has left that idyllic, peaceful scene of a wedding. They've been at a party. They have celebrated. He produced an abundance of wine. It was a great time for them to enjoy together. And now he and his family and his disciples are beginning to make their way to Capernaum. They stay there a few days. But what's interesting about John's narrative at this point is we see Jesus in this entourage. But as you make your way to verse 13, all of a sudden, the focus is on Jesus exclusively. It doesn't mention his group, his disciples, his family. It's just Jesus in Jerusalem. Now, the setting in which he, or the, the events that bring him to this particular place and time are fascinating because it is Passover. And Passover means that Jerusalem in this season is crowded. Uh, it is its own holiday, if you will. It's hard for us as Americans to grasp the significance of Passover and what it would have meant for the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the, I think the best way that I could explain it is that if Christmas and Easter got married and had a baby and then gave that baby up for adoption to July the 4th, you would then get a a general idea of the significance of Passover because it started out as a religious holiday. It was the thing that actually signified their redemption. This was their deliverance from Egypt. It was their establishment as a nation. And yet, as it had continued to progress, it took on more of a nationalistic political kind of flavor as well. And so it called on all the males to actually come to Jerusalem and make a sacrifice acknowledging what God had done for his children back in the Old Testament, how he had redeemed them, how he had passed them over. He, he exercised his wrath on the enemies and he spared his own children, thereby making them a nation. And so what happens is Jerusalem swells in population at this particular time. And the focal point of that population is none other than the temple itself. Now, the temple in its own right is an amazing structure. I mean, it had been around in some form or fashion for about a thousand years by this particular point, and it was the focal point not only for Jewish religion, but also Jewish politics. As Americans, you naturally just think of a separation of church and state. That is not what they wanted. The two were to be together, and the focal point of that was the temple. And so if they were going to come and celebrate this particular feast, uh, they would do it at the temple. This was supposed to be the dwelling place of God. It was the place where they would go and enjoy relationship with him. And so Jesus is coming as a faithful Jewish man to, to worship at Passover in the temple as he is prescribed to do from Old Testament law. And I want you to understand that in his humanity, his expectation is that he will be able to worship. He is looking forward to a time uh, with his father in his father's house. But what he finds, though, will shock him to the very core. Instead of coming to find a bunch of worshipers, he actually finds a makeshift marketplace. 
Uh, We see this here in verse 14. It says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And that doesn't seem like much to you, but I do like the word found. Uh, The the Greek word is the same word from which we get our English word eureka. Like, I found it, like something is surprising you, you know, you've stumbled across something that would in many cases in our sense be valuable, but in Jesus' case, it's actually something shocking because he sees in the temple, instead of worshipers, he sees this market. And in and of itself, it doesn't seem that bad. I mean, you've got people selling animals and they're exchanging money. For those of you who are history fans and like these kinds of details, I want you to understand that in and of themselves, them selling animals is not a problem. I mean, how many of you in recent days have taken a journey with an animal? Please raise your hand. Okay. Four of you know how much of a problem that is. The rest of us know better. (laughs) Nobody wants to bring even a little dog with them on a trip in most cases, and yet in this case, they're going to have to bring an ox or a sheep, or if they're poor, maybe even a pigeon or a dove. It is a difficult thing. So in light of the fact that Jewish people have been scattered all around the world because of various persecutions placed upon that country in years past, I mean, people were traveling from hundreds of miles, and it just doesn't make sense to get the animal from point A to point B. What you do is you take your best animal, you sell it, you get the money, and then you buy another animal of equal value once you get there. So that was not a problem. It's not a problem to buy uh, an animal. I mean, you know, you're exchanging it from some kind of currency to something more concrete and back. It's okay. But what makes this interesting, what makes this different, is that this, this market, this establishment for selling of animals, it actually now, instead of being on the Valley of Kidron, where it had historically been, it had now moved into the temple courts. There was a second thing that was going on there, and it was the exchanging of money. And I always wondered about this as a child reading this story. Why why, uh, exchange money? Who, Who really cares? They cared because these people were coming from other countries with other types of currency, and often those coins would have on them images of pagan deities and gods. Well, to get into the temple, you had to pay a temple tax. Imagine showing up to church and us charging an entry fee. Basically, that was what they would do for the temple. They would charge an entry fee, and that money was to be used for the building up and upkeep of this magnificent structure. But they didn't want to take anything that would actually profane the temple, so they said, all right, we're only going to take this specific type of coinage because it's free from any type of pagan inscription, and also the silver tended to be more pure. So they would do this little exchange. And if you've ever exchanged money at an airport or you've traveled to a foreign country, you understand that there is just a natural exchange rate. You know, you, you lose a little bit of money when you do that. And in and of themselves, I don't think that the exchanging of money was even a problem. It kind of makes sense to pay to upkeep a building that you like and want to preserve. But Jesus is upset, and you're going to find out exactly why. But, but I want you to, to, to note how he responds, how he responds to this market, to this commercialization of the temple precincts. The, the text says in verse 15, and, and here's the ultimate shock of the passage, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So Jesus is in a fit of rage. And for some people, this is immensely disturbing. Why would Jesus ever get angry? Why would he express rage? And the reason why we have a problem with Jesus expressing anger is because we know that 99 times out of 100, when we express anger, we do it problematically. 99 times out of 100. 
Think about the last time you just totally lost it. All of you are looking at me rather blankly. If you're thinking of the last time that you lost it, I would think that there would be some emotion on your face in this moment. I mean, the the time that you, thank you, somebody gave me an open mouth. The, the, The shock and the awe of what comes out of you in those moments when you are actually enraged. When we get angry, most of the time we are erratic. Uh, uh, We just kind of lose it. It's typically over the most petty of things. We blow our top, we flip our lid, we lose it uh, over the the smallest stuff. Uh, and, And our actions seem to be totally out of control. Or maybe it's just me and the other person up front here. But we, we hit things, we, we break stuff, we embarrass ourselves, some scream, some cuss, some cry, some shake. And it's as if something comes over us. It's like it's forcing us to do these extravagant things. And most of the time, when we're done with whatever it is that we do, more damage has been done than good. Agreed? The whole, I think the, we typically think of anger kind of like the way that people would view uh, Bobby Knight in the mid-80s. <laughs> now, for those of you who were, were born like 2000 and, uh, and beyond, you're going to have to look this up on YouTube later. <laughs> but I, I would really encourage you to, to, to check out that uh, caricature of anger because Knight did indeed have a problem, and it was actually brought to a head... Uh, in a particular basketball game in 1985, Indiana versus Purdue, we have a, a graduate and alumni here. Um, and I bring this up in honor of March Madness. I think it's very appropriate. <laughs> I rewatched the video this week because I I, I've always heard the story, but I've actually never seen it. It's interesting. Um, Knight racks up three technical fouls in this particular incident. He's cussing at the ref because he doesn't think that this particular player actually earned a foul. And by the time he's gotten his third technical foul, he actually takes a, a chair and throws it across the court. And it, listen to this. It slides across the court and crashes into the section with people with disabilities. Knight's ejected from the game. Obviously, the other team gets to shoot six free throws. Purdue ends up winning. Knight gets suspended for only one game, kind of interestingly. But what did his anger get him? Nothing but trouble. And we look at that and we we think of our own expressions of anger, like think about the, the kinds of things that make you angry, that make you lose it. Somebody cutting you off in traffic. How petty is that? Somebody honking a horn. Some of you just need to cool it. Because somebody honked their horn at you, I get it. They're from another place. They know we shouldn't do that down here. They don't know we shouldn't do that down here. But we just get so enraged. I mean, over traffic. Or I think of siblings or people in domestic life, how angry a dad, maybe, could get if somebody loses the remote. (laughs) Hypothetical, totally. (laughs) Or a sibling when somebody sits in their chair. Anger for us seems to be asinine because we know that 99 times out of 100, when we're angry, it's about stupid stuff, and we respond in stupid ways. And so when we see Jesus displaying anger, we get a little iffy about it because we know that normally it doesn't turn out well. And yet, I would like you to carefully look at this text and contrast Jesus' display of anger with what you and I do most of the time. Notice both the intensity of his anger and the object of his anger. First of all, I would have you see that Jesus' anger here is measured. It is measured. It is not off the handle. Jesus' anger is not impulsive. It is measured. It is thorough. It is directed It doesn't burn like a Christmas tree. It 
It lingers more like a log on a fire. I mean, if you think about what he needed to do in this moment, he first takes the time to make a whip out of cords. Now, friends, never done it, but I can't imagine that you're just picking up one of those somewhere. I mean, Jesus had to find cords, somehow weave them together into some kind of makeshift whip, and then he is going to systematically work his way through this bazaar, through this marketplace that was in and of itself massive. It's hard for you to understand. Like We think of a temple as like the, the, our local church building, but the temple in that particular time was a massive place. I mean, 35 acres. Can you imagine that? A 35-acre piece of property. And this particular court that he is in certainly isn't 35 acres in and of itself. The whole property was. But we are talking about a massive space And at this particular time, like the precinct of the temple could have held 75,000 people. I mean, again, stop thinking Faith Bible Church with three to 400 people sitting in here on a Sunday and start thinking about a local football stadium. It says that Jesus cleared them all out. He shuts the thing down. Now, Your temper and my temper could typically last anywhere from like 10 seconds to maybe three minutes. Whatever Jesus does here is like the long burn. It it takes up the entire time because he thoroughly drives out, it says, every person who was selling in that particular incident. And not only does he drive out all the people, but he drives out all the animals. And nobody even has any clue as to what he used the whip on. We assume it was the animals. (laughs) But Jesus here cleans house. I mean, in fact, he's so in control of himself that you need to understand this. I thought this was a great note as you're just reading the text. He tells that the people who are holding the doves take these things away. Now think about it. You're like, well, why doesn't the, the doves just fly away? Well, the doves are in baskets. Like they can't just fly away. So he tells the guys, get your doves out of here too. So he does all the work. He's telling guys, get this out of here. Get this out of here. And he says to them all, stop making my father's house a house of trade. Which shows us the second piece about Jesus' anger. It is not only measured, but it is meaningful. So you're ticked off about somebody honking their horn at you or taking your parking spot or sitting in your seat, or stepping on your foot, or whatever. And Jesus is angry about something in particular, and that is the way people are worshiping his Father. It is different. He clarifies their wrong and the ultimate object of his anger. And here's why we know, like, what it is that actually makes Jesus so angry. It is that they have made his father's house a house of trade. They have commercialized a relationship with God. Think about just the term a house. It is to be the house of God. When you go into someone's house, most often you were doing that to enjoy relationship with them. If they were going to do business with you, they would invite you to their office. A house is a place of relationship. And ultimately, they were to go and enjoy relationship with the Father. They were to offer their sacrifices and faith. And yet this thing had become an opportunity for financial gain, and Jesus knew their hearts, as the text will later make clear. They had taken that which should have been relationship and turned it into transaction. Could you imagine inviting some people over for your birthday? And then someone among maybe the handful of guests that you have there starts cornering off some of the people that you've also invited to the party and starts trying to sell them like some Cutco knives or like Norwex cleaning products. You'd be rightfully upset about that, right? They were supposed to be there to enjoy relationship. And yet they had made it an object of personal gain. And so also here, this had happened in this particular instance, and this made Jesus angry. He doesn't want relationship with God to become commercialized. He doesn't want people to financially profit off of a relationship with the Father. 
And this has very real translation and context. Like, he is just so angry against this commercialization because he is such a fan of relationship with the Father. Friends, this is a good thing for you to remember. You cannot be a passionate lover and a passive fighter. (laughs) To be a lover is to be a fighter. To care for some things means that you will condemn others. To care for the well-being of your children, to love them, is to hate pedophilia. To love your country is to hate terrorism. To love your health is to hate cancer. Are you catching me? To love a relationship with God is to hate the commercialization of it. And Jesus here is consumed with his Father's glory and people relating to him to the degree that even his disciples in verse 17, it says, remembered that it was written, Psalm 69, 9, we read it earlier, zeal for your house will consume me. In that particular text, David is just like identifying fully with God and his purposes and the temple, and he knows that because he is so consumed with God and his purposes, that the enemies of God hate him too. And David's like, I am consumed with God's glory, and because I am so fully identified with it that it hurts me. I am literally being harmed by the nations around me because I am committed to God and His ways. And you know what? They, knowing that text, like remembered at that particular point, like here's one that's even greater than David. Here's one that is actually committed to God's greater purposes. Here's one who fully identifies with the glory of God and people enjoying relationship with Him. He is feeling this thing. It isn't just Jesus, gentle, meek, mild. It is Jesus outraged, concerned, zealous for his Father's glory. And because he loves his Father, he hates things that threaten relationship to that. I don't know, friends, exactly how this would look today. I think one of the greatest challenges of a narrative like this is trying to figure out who Jesus would slap in the face and who Jesus would pat on the back. And the the easiest, I mean, the heart, this becomes the most difficult as we start thinking about this on an individual level, but I would have you think about this on an institutional level for a moment. I know, based on what I see in the passage of Scripture here, that there still are some institutions for sure that Jesus himself would condemn. One of the historic ones has been uh, the Church of Rome or the Roman Catholic Church because of their tendency as it would continue to mature to literally commercialize a relationship with God. It is good to have Nathan Busnitz here today. He's a church history professor at Master Seminary, so I have to be very careful about what I'm saying in this moment because I could be easily corrected. But I did verify with him. I said, you know, the whole thing that sparked the Protestant Reformation was actually Luther posting, you know, this 95 thesis on the church door at Wittenberg. But the thing that actually, like, led him to do that was the sale of indulgences in the church. Uh, in fact, uh, Johann Tetzel, the, the little monk that was traveling around uh, peddling these things, uh, was like a master marketer. Uh, some reports uh, even indicate that he would bring with him like a choir who would uh, sing and chant, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. <laughs> so I asked Nate about this, and he said, well, they didn't actually sell them. They said it like this, uh, if you give to the church, you will get a you know, uh, this indulgence, you'll get this relief from purgatory for your family. And I'm like, oh, I know some radio ministries that do that. (laughs) For your gift of $25, you can have this particular book or whatever. But ultimately, the heart of it was transactional. Let's gain, let's profit on this thing. And so there have been institutions historically that have had a track record of actually saying, all right, we're going to take a relationship with God that should be enjoyed by faith, and now it's going to become a transaction. 
you give something, you get something. And that kind of thing just seems normal to us, quid pro pro, right? Like it just makes sense. You give something, you get something in return. We're all a bunch of capitalists. It makes a ton of sense. And yet the truth of the matter is it doesn't fly with Jesus. He will not have it. He hates it. He condemns it. With a rage, he would take a whip and beat it out of his church if possible. It isn't just Rome, other institutional expressions of this that should engender our collective vitriol would also be, in many cases, expressions of the charismatic movement, particularly health, wealth, and prosperity preaching. Probably 80% of what you would ever see on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, I assure you, Jesus hates. Now, I'm not trying to do, like, church one-upsmanship here. I'm not, you know, I'm not in any way concerned that they have TV ministries and we don't. But the truth is, friends, and I don't say this often, but let me say it now. There are churches even in this area that are moving in, that are teaching stuff like, hey, just give Just be generous with your money, and God's going to bless you in ways that you can't imagine. The hard line, by the way, prosperity gospel preachers have actually wised up to their marketing campaign because they've been exposed so many times, and now they're softening their language. But friends, it is out there, it is real, and it is dangerous. Don't just think, oh, well, they're just well-meaning people. This is the very thing that Jesus hates. And I would give it just one more institutional warning. I mentioned Catholicism on the whole. I mentioned the charismatic movement on the whole, especially those who are involved in the prosperity preaching side of things. And I know I'm making stereotypes and somebody can correct me afterward. But look, just get the general point. But can I warn you of one more, friends? And I don't want to over-dramatize this, but you understand that this commercialization of a relationship with God can even happen in well-meaning churches like our own. It's very subtle, but it's very real. Where good, seemingly gospel-preaching churches will say something like this, you want to enjoy a relationship with God, this is all you've got to do. You pray this prayer, and then you get baptized. And then after that, you're going to um, be a part of the church, and you're going to read your Bible every day, and you're going to pray, and you're going to show up to church three to four times a week. And if you do these things, you're right with God. Now again, it's so subtle, because every one of us in here would think, yeah, these are good things to do. But the difference is, one is a requirement for relationship with God. The other is a result of relationship with God. One is a got to, the other is a get to. Friends, I want you to understand that if you truly believe in Christ, indeed, you enjoy relationship with God and that will fuel you to obey Him by identifying with Him in baptism and walking with Him in the company of His church and reading the Word and praying and witnessing and giving and all those things. But those are fruit. They are not the root. The root is what Christ himself has already accomplished. And so beware of that type of transactional approach to a relationship with God. Jesus himself hates it. And and so in light of this, what, what happens is fascinating. Through these actions in the temple, Jesus has condemned transactional, commercial, external only approaches to God. He's condemned it. So that's why we labeled this first movement condemnation. But I want you to notice that he doesn't just condemn that This isn't just about condemnation, it's also about relocation. He offers something better, something better than what they were doing. Notice the relocation in verses 18 to 21. The conversation is going to go down because these guys are going to want an explanation. And so it says in verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I can only imagine like how this went down because he's kicked them all out of the temple. And and it's kind of like, well, now what? (laughs) And so they're standing there and they're asking him, okay, you just did something massive. 
And they clearly suspect that he had some authority to do so because I just want you to be aware of something. There was a temple police system just like you would have security guards at the Smithsonian. They had their own form of security guards that if they thought this man was a raging lunatic, they could have had him arrested immediately. But there's something about Jesus that has intrigued them to the point that they actually give him an audience and say, uh, okay, you just did something really big here. Uh, on what authority did you do this? Now, at first glance, it's interesting that they use the word sign. They said, what, show us a sign to know that you had the authority to do this. And you would think that, oh, well, these are just really well-meaning individuals who are actually just wanting additional verification to make sure that they understand that what they've, has been condemned is actually condemnable. But they're not looking for clarification. What they're actually doing here is looking for redirection. They don't like what Jesus did. They never wrestle with what he is communicating through his actions, that the way that you're approaching God is condemned. Instead, they say, okay, do some more tricks for us. Do some more signs for us so we can know if we really should be listening to this or not. I can just imagine, like I can see this, not from personal experience for real this time, but I can just see it, you know, like a, a group of, like teenage uh, kids, you know, and there's like a sleepover and somebody like steals a pack of cigarettes and they're like huddled off, you know, like in the backwoods of the property somewhere. And then the well-meaning sibling comes along and says, you shouldn't be doing that. This is wrong. This is bad. And instead of them actually acknowledging the wrongness of what they're doing, you can imagine the smart aleck leader among the group saying, well, who told you that you had the authority to tell us this? I don't see a permission slip from dad. Where's your badge? You know, like you get that kind of thing. Like they're questioning. I mean, like it's obvious they should not be doing this. The parents would not be pleased with this particular action. But instead, they've made this thing some kind of like philosophical slideshow. I mean, sideshow about, okay, well, where's your authority coming from? In this case, Jesus has condemned the commercialization of an approach to God. And they're like, well, who told you you could do that? I mean, they know they're in the wrong. It's just, it's just a total side move. They're, they're, they're distracting them. The real issue is their sin. But they act like on the basis of needing proof, they, they need some kind of sign of his authority. And notice how Jesus responds to them in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Hey, um... Church family, for a second, this will be the most mentally strenuous three minutes of the entire thing. So muster up the mental energy for a second. And then I promise we can back it back down. You ready? Because what Jesus says here, he says one thing, but it means two things. Okay? Follow me quick. I mean, just notice the appearance, like what he's saying on the outside. What does he say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. If you heard that, what would you think he was talking about? The building. I mean, he's in the temple. He just cleared the temple. He cleared a geographical space. It sounds like from the appearance, this is a physical building. But notice what he tells them. He says, I'm going to show you a sign. Are you ready for the sign? Here it is. You just need to do one thing first, and I'm going to show you the sign. Destroy the temple. <laughs> now, this thing in its most recent iteration took 46 years to renovate. Herod the Great had just done a massive expansion project on what Zerubbabel and company had done several hundred years before that. And this thing was an ancient wonder of the world, not one of the seven. But, I mean, it was a phenomenal structure. And he says, okay, are you ready for a sign? You want a sign? Here it is. Here it is. You tear this thing down, and I'm going to build it back up in three days. <laughs> he gives them, he says, look, I'll give you a sign. All you got to do is do this first, and then I'll do my part. He says, I want you to exercise some authority over the temple. I just exercise authority. Here, you exercise authority by tearing it down. I'll show you my authority and building it back up. And they're like, uh, we, it took 46 years. I, I don't think that we can do this. But Jesus says that on the surface to get them off his back. But he says something deeper for those who are listening carefully. All right, I've still got 60 seconds left on your strenuous mental attention. Remember, he said one thing, but he means two things. He meant something on the surface, but he meant something deeper. And I am not making this up, because John will make it clear. Look at verse 21. 
It says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. It seemed, it appeared as if he was speaking about the physical temple, but what he is actually meaning to intend is that this was talking about his body. Like his actual body, through this statement, he is saying, will be the temple. Everything that you do in the temple, in enjoying a relationship with God, will now take place in my body. And you will destroy it, my body, and I will raise it up in three days. You will destroy the old way of doing things, and I will raise up a new way of doing things in three days. This is fascinating because he said his body is now to become the temple. It will be destroyed in death. It will be reopened in resurrection. I, I, I've struggled, admittedly, church family, and for those of you who are guests, let me just be transparent. I spent all the right amount of time that I normally would in study, and, but let me tell you, I'm just really struggling to figure out the right words to say to help you get the main point of this text, because it's here, and it's going to sound kind of weird, but I, I need you to grasp this. What Jesus is indicating through all of his actions here is that everything that anyone would have done for a thousand years in accessing God through the temple structure is going to be shut down like a business, if you will, and it's going to be reopened in a new location, and that new location will not be another physical space per se, but it will be his flesh and blood body. Everything that you would have accomplished in this magnificent temple structure will now be accomplished through his body, which will be destroyed, and three days later will be rebuilt and open for business in a new way. Are you getting the picture? Now, I, I want you to understand this because this has huge implications, and congratulations, we're already at the end of the message because that's the point. But let me give you uh, the, the implications of this, some clarifications of it, a verification and an invitation. For those of you who like those kinds of things, this is what I would write down because we've got a lot to apply here in a little bit of time. I want you to note some implications of, the, of what has just been taught in this passage. I want you to note some clarifications. I want you to see a verification, and then I want to give you a couple of invitations. So here are the implications. If this is true, if everything that would have been accomplished in the temple for a thousand plus years will be shut down and condemned and shuttered up, and reopened in the physical body of Jesus. Here's what this this is what it implies. This, there is no more, no more holy hardware or sacred stuff. Do you get that? Now, this means a lot. I, I'm not trying to be cruel, but I just want you to understand that you wear a cross around your neck, or you've got a family Bible from generations ago, it is stuff. It is not sacred. It is not holy. Everything holy, everything that would get you closer to God is now confined to the body of Jesus. Christians can be as superstitious as the world. And we have these talismans, we have these things that we think ward off evil in our lives. And I just want you to know, friends, that if that's you or anyone that you know, Jesus hates that kind of stuff. He hates it. There's no holy hardware, there's no sacred stuff. Can I give you another implication? There are no special spiritual sages or powerful priestly individuals. So I'm not just talking about stuff, now I'm talking about people. I want you to understand something and get this. There is no one on this planet who can somehow, in their person, help get you closer to God. There's no priest. And by the way, 
That one's obvious. There's no preacher. No, I'm not. I'm not. No, I don't. I don't think I've met anyone here that thinks if they're you know close to me, all of a sudden they're closer to God. You know me well enough. But I would just warn you about maybe some of the heroes that you listen to on the radio or the people that you watch on TV. Some people just like worship the ground that these guys walk on. You know what? They put their pants on one leg at a time like everybody else, and they come to Jesus. I mean, come to the Father through Jesus the same way you do. We better be careful about all of a sudden making certain people or individuals somehow sacred. And and can I give you one more implication? There are no more righteousness imparting rites or rituals. There are no more righteousness imparting rites or rituals. Just be careful. Just be careful of, of this of these notions that if you, you say these things or you pray these things or you do these ceremonies or you do these signs, that somehow it's going to make you right with God. And then the last one I'll mention, that there are no more uh, sacred spaces. Uh, friends, I just, sorry, just for the sake of making a point. This and this is not the temple of God. Now here I am, I'm saying this, having just told you last Sunday afternoon that we're praying about raising money for another building. It's like, Justin, this is financial suicide. You should tell people that this is the temple. This is not the temple of God. This is a building. Listen to this. It's a building that houses the temple of God. God's presence is made known here because his word is preached and his people are gathered. But guess what? There is nothing in this brick or this mortar or this wood or this carpet that gets you any closer to Jesus than your own bedroom. So those are the implications. Jesus said, no more sacred spaces, no more special individuals, no more rites, no more rituals will actually grant you access into relationship with God. Now that being said... We have some questions to answer, all right? You ready for the clarifications? Those are implications. Let me clarify some things. Clarification number one of adjustment. What about the building? Isn't it a sanctuary in some way? I had somebody correct me on that the other day. I don't know if you're here. If you are here, I'm not trying to be offensive. Don't worry, I didn't call your name. I didn't know it. But somebody walked out the other day and said, I was kind of disturbed that you called this place uh, an auditorium, not a sanctuary. I was like, well, it's an auditorium because people audibly hear things here. Uh, the sanctuary is the holy places that are within our hearts because Christ lives there. You can, look, I'm not going to get in a debate of words. If you feel comfortable calling this a sanctuary, it's fine. But I want you to be aware of what you're saying. When you say it's a sanctuary, you're saying that this is a sacred space. I, well, I, I had a time where somebody corrected me. I was 16 years old, and I went to my church on a Friday night to help the dude with the sound system. It's a Friday night, and it's a sound system. And I'm wearing cargo shorts, because those were cool at the time. <laughs> and someone who shall remain unnamed found out about it and raked me over the coals. How dare you wear cargo shorts in God's house? Now look, this isn't me having an ax to grind 20 years later. But I do want to make a point. It wasn't a sacred space. It's a building. This building, I want to, we need to get this clear before we start spending a bunch of money on stuff. And I, I will argue that it's going to be expensive because it's the world we live in. And I'm not going to say that we go for the cheapest thing possible. But let me go ahead and clarify a theology of a building for a second before we're jumping in. Um, this building is a space that facilitates our focus on Jesus and our fellowship with him through his word, his signs, and his people. That's what it is. The sanctuary is the body of Christ in heaven, only represented now through his people gathered around the gospel and his official signs. I'm going to repeat that just for the sake of clarity. This building is a space that facilitates our focus on Jesus and our fellowship with him through his word, signs, and people. The sanctuary 
is the body of Christ in heaven, only represented now through his people gathered around the gospel and his official signs. That being said, friends, uh, when you build a space to facilitate something, well, you want it to be done well. You know, I, I think that at the essence of medical care or doctors providing, you know, um, knowledge, skill, and certain medicinal procedures to individuals. Uh, that, that's the essence of medical care, but uh, it is expressed in good tools and good buildings. I mean, nobody wants to go to just a rundown hospital building. It could get in the way of what you're doing. You're glad that somebody's spending some money on this thing. And, and I think in a similar way, the essence of what we do here is not the building, of course, but man, isn't it nice to be sitting in a well-lit space where we're not sweating like a bunch of dogs right now? It keeps the focus on the Word. Isn't it, isn't it nice that we have a carpet to walk on so that when people fall, they don't necessarily hurt themselves as easily? I mean, isn't it good to be sitting on a, a padded chair that you're used to sitting on as opposed to just trying to unnecessarily torture people with the plastic chairs that we have in the back? Like, I'm, I'm not saying that we, you know, we don't care about the building. I'm just saying that the building's not the sanctuary and there are other ways to think about investing in it well. Sorry, if you're visiting today, I'm just trying to be a pastor. I just want you to know it's not like this every week. Let me give another clarification. Say, well, what about pastors? What about popular preachers? Are they not in some sense priests? Do they not embody or emulate some kind of closeness to God? No, they do not. As a matter of fact, they do not. We are but mere men whose only authority comes from our commitment to and consumption with the Word of God. Sure, indeed, I want to make a statement, a concession. Other pastors and the congregation have affirmed our trustworthiness as teachers of the word, but that which enables our authority is the same to which all God's people have access, namely the word of God. Friends, I have no more authority than is in these very pages, nor does any other pastor or elder or whatever title they give themselves. What about signs and ceremonies? Justin, what do you mean by that? What about baptism? What about the Lord's Supper? Let me be clear about those. Those are prescribed commemorations of that which Christ accomplished in his own body. Think about that. The signs in and of themselves are nothing. They are commemorations of all the things. What do they commemorate? The body of Christ. What is baptism? It is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are identified with his dead, buried, risen again body. Uh, what is communion? It is a sign of his broken body, the bread, and his shed blood. All, all the signs do point us back to the body of Jesus. They're actually reminding us where the real sacred space actually is. And so, friends, they are significant indeed, but they are not in and of themselves sacred. They don't impart grace. They indicate grace. They point to the grace that has already been given through Jesus who died for his people and rose again. So those are the clarifications. But let me give you a verification. A verification. This is a big deal. Jesus is making a huge claim. He's taking an institution that has been around for over a thousand years and he's saying, I'm shutting this down. It will not be in existence anymore. And I'm reopening a new one in my body. How in the world could anybody ever say that? You know, there is a sense in which the, the Pharisees are being a little sarcastic, but they do want to know a sign. Like, hey, before we just shut down operations at some point, like, how do we know that this is really true? He says, all right, we'll tear this temple down and I'll raise it up in three days. And you know what Jesus meant by that? He meant his body. And how do we know that things have now ceased in the temple and have started in him? Three days later, he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Christ vindicated his claims to be the new temple. He is now the access point. How do you know? Because he rose again from the dead. It's so weird to me, and it's partly my fault because I am a pastor here too, but it's so weird to me that we only like, celebrate the resurrection on Easter. And like the church historically celebrated it every Sunday. 
In some churches, you rarely hear of the resurrection unless it's Easter. You hear about the cross, you just don't hear about the resurrection. But friends, the resurrection is the indication, the vindication that everything that Christ did on the cross counted and matters. This, this new way of approaching God is open in Jesus. <laughs> Jesus' resurrection, it was the equivalent of somebody turning on the sign that says, open for business. But it's not business, it's relationship. Open for relationship. You can now enter in and enjoy through me. You say, huge claim, how do we back it up? We back it up on the basis of the fact that Christ rose again. And in light of that, this new thing is true. Look, last verse we're going to cover. I'm not going to get to 23 to 25. Verse 22, this is it. When therefore, listen to this, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's when they finally got it. They, they were like, he's making a huge claim here. I don't really know. I'm not really sure. And when he had died and rose again, they were like, whoa, this is real. This is true. This temple thing is shut down. Now we're going to access it through his body. And from that point forward, they were free from the ritual. They were free from those signs and those rites and those ceremonies and those sacred spaces and those special individuals. Now they would only operate in relationship with God through the body of Christ by faith. Which leads us to these final invitations. And I close with these quickly. Friends, invitation number one is entry into relationship with God via faith in the dead having died and was buried and now is risen again, Jesus. It is inviting you to believe and trust in the same. You want to enjoy a relationship with God? You want things to be right between you and God? You do not need mere religion. Jesus hates that. You need relationship with God. And I realize that that's an overstatement. And some people don't like the even claim that Jesus doesn't like religion. But in the sense that I'm defining it here, as some type of ritual that gets you into relationship with God, that is over. This is now something by faith, something that helped me a few years ago. I want you to understand this, friends, especially those of you who are visiting and you're not in Christ. It would be easy for you to think that as I am imploring for you to trust in Jesus and enter into a relationship with him by faith, that all of a sudden you mean, um, okay, I'm not going to live my rebellious life that I used to live, I'm going to live a religious life. I want you to know that we have to warn you against two things. We need to warn you against outright rebellion against God, doing your own thing your own way. But we also need to warn you against religious or even better, self-righteous approaches to God. I don't want you to think that you're just exchanging rebellion for religious practices that have Jesus' name stickered on them, and then all of a sudden you're going to be in right relationship with God. I want to distance you from two things. I'm distancing you from rebellion, I'm distancing you from religion or self-righteousness, and I am trying to invite you into relationship with Christ by faith alone. And in light of that, friends, I don't know what would keep you from believing. Some of you are scared to enter into this because you're like, man, I don't know if I can live this thing out. I don't know if I can keep up those ceremonies. I don't know if I, I want to do all those spiritual and religious things. Look, don't worry about that. Just enjoy the relationship with the Father provided by Jesus, and he will give you the heart to do the things that he has called you to do. So it's an invitation into relationship. But there also here is an invitation to ongoing enjoyment. Friends, if we don't need those, those uh, signs, I mean those ceremonies and those sacred spaces and those special individuals, uh, what then do we do? We enjoy our relationship with the Father through Jesus. And there's two ways in which this primarily happens. It can happen corporately and it can happen personally. You know what you've done today if you're here in Christ? You have put yourself in a context to be reminded of the body of Jesus. You've put yourself, you've situationed yourself with a bunch of other people who are thinking about the body of Christ and who are leading you to do the same. Some stuff's just done better than groups. Some of you, you would know that if you would just join an exercise group as opposed to trying to do this thing individually, you'd be a lot better off. There's something about personal accountability. And in a similar way, when you enter into the enjoyment of Christ, you do so with his people and it enhances the focus upon him. We do that not only as individuals, but we do that through what we do as we speak the Word of God, sing the Word of God, signify the Word of God through baptism and communion. 
Pray the Word of God. I mean, like, the, the, the gospel is just here, and the Puritans called Sunday the market day of the soul. You just come on Sunday, and you're just filling up with all these wonderful reminders of the body of Christ and how you can enjoy Him through the week. This is a great way to continue to enjoy. Again, it's nothing in the brick and mortar. There's nothing in the pasture in and of himself. But the body of Christ is known here by faith because we speak of Him, we sing of Him, we signify Him. But there's also the personal enjoyment. I, I just want you to understand that, that the means of grace that you can enjoy in church are also able, I mean, are opportunities for you to enjoy through the week. Some of you have somehow turned what was supposed to be the greatest blessing of your Christian life to be able to read and meditate on God's Word and pray to Him. You've turned the greatest blessing into the greatest burden. It's like, oh, I've got to read my Bible today. It's like saying, oh, I've got to relate to my wife today. And that may be true of some of you. <laughs> we can talk after. But in a healthy relationship, you want to enjoy the other person. And in a healthy relationship with God, you want to enjoy Him. And God has given us the grace of His Word and prayer. And a text like this reminds us we need no special space. We need no significant individual. We enter into and enjoy relationship with God the Father through the body of Jesus Christ, His Son, by faith. Being reminded of that in His Word and in prayer. So, true religion, a, a real relationship with God here has been relocated in Jesus. The temple condemned. His resurrected body now open. Let us celebrate and enjoy that relationship through Christ as we close in prayer and song. Father, thank you for the work that you've done in sending your Son for us to now enjoy relationship with you. We are not enemies, but sons and daughters of the great and gracious King. Or may we be reminded afresh and bold to speak that this all happens in and through Christ alone. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.